0: Hi everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today I want to address a couple of questions that have been asked of me just in the last few weeks. One about prayer and one about personal Bible reading. Uh, The questions came in uh, different forms I guess, but the general thrust of them was the kind of thing that I guess you can probably predict yourself perhaps from having felt similar thoughts yourselves or even perhaps asked similar questions yourselves. There's a sense in many of us, perhaps all of us, much of the time, if not most or all of the time, that there's something inadequate, something missing, something wrong in our times of Bible reading and prayer. And I've been asked, just in this last couple of weeks, couple of times, and many, many times in the past. Pastor, what can I do about this? Pastor, what advice do you have? My times of Bible reading feel uh, less exciting to me. I feel less zealous for the Word than I have done in the past. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. Uh, What should I do? What should I pray for? And I want to share with you just a few thoughts that I have on these, these subjects today. This won't be long, I don't think, maybe 15 minutes, I don't know, but um, certainly not the hour-long marathons that we've had in the last couple of sessions where we've had conversations with people. This will just be me sharing a few thoughts about these subjects. So first um, where to begin? Let me just begin by making an observation about uh, how we come to know God. I've been reading this wonderful book called The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavinck. If you've never read anything by Herman Bavinck, um, and if you're a tall, sort uh, the type who doesn't mind books this thick, inch and a half thick, it's it's a it's a meaty book, but it's not a hard book to read. It is 500 and something pages long, but I recommend this book. It is a wonderful, wonderful book about the wonderful works of God. One of the points that Barvink makes in common with uh, many in our Reformed and evangelical tradition is that we can't know God unless He reveals Himself. It's a really interesting thought that God is is unknown. To us unless he chooses to disclose himself to us. He's unknowable to us unless he chooses to disclose himself to us. And uh, of course at that point a difference emerges from the gods of other religions. Uh, the gods of other religions are often depicted as literally or figuratively or symbolically dwelling in darkness in the sense that you can't see them because they're shrouded from our view. And of course there is even in scripture uh, there are events which um, conjure that kind of image, God being concealed by a cloud, for example. So you can see him but you can't see him. You can see him because hey look there's the cloud, but the cloud itself hides the Lord from your sight. But it is interesting to me, just and Barvink even quotes this text in First Timothy six, sixteen. I was just chewing this over earlier today, where Paul speaks of the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Our God is not a God who dwells in darkness, therefore we can't see him. Our God is a God who dwells in light, therefore we can't see him. It's not that we can't see God because it's too dark. We can't see God because it's too bright God says to Moses in the book of Exodus, no one can see me and live. And of course um, theology, uh, understanding of scripture rightly tells us that the essence of God is invisible. But if God were to pour forth all his blazing perfection, all of the things that make him who he is and make them visible in some visionary way to us so that we with our created eyes could see all that which is true of the Creator all at once, we will be blinded by it. It's not that we would see darkness, it's that we'd see so much that we couldn't take it in. We can't know God not because he's impossible to find. We can't know God not because he's in darkness. The reason we can't know God is because he is light and in him is no darkness at all and the light would blind us. So what has God done to reveal himself to us? Well. He's done some fairly obvious things. He's um, first, well maybe this isn't obvious, but it's worth saying, um, even if it is. God made the world in the first instance as a revelation of himself. Uh, It is wonderfully and gloriously true that God is actually manifested in all created things. Psalm 19 declares that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And day by day they pour forth speech, and night by night they display knowledge. And there's no speech or language when their voice is, where their voice is not heard. All the things that God has made shout and scream about him. And of course, it's obvious why. I spoke about this recently at Gloria but just briefly to cover again some of that ground. Uh, everything comes from God. There's no other principle to which God looks when he's trying to figure out how to make trees and rocks and flowers and mountains and people. He sees himself, he reflects on his being, his character as the Triune God, and the world is patterned on him. Human beings supremely are patterned on him, that's why in Genesis 1 we're called the image of God, but all things are in God's image in that derivative sense, in that things display God's perfections. Now uh, we are unable to perceive rightly God's perfections in all things because of our finitude and particularly our sinfulness. but. God has, in Calvin's word, added a second uh, source of knowledge of God. Not so much to displace or replace God's revelation in creation, but to show us what that revelation in creation and in history means. The scriptures are God showing us how to read what he's done in the world and what he's done in history. Just think about that for a second. It would be easy to get into a tangle with our doctrine of special revelation scripture and general revelation, the created order. Those are the two technical terms that are sometimes used that many of you will be familiar with. We could get in a tangle by thinking, oh well, general revelation didn't work because of our sin, so God has replaced it and we got special revelation instead. And you kind of see why that's true to a certain extent. It is true to a certain extent, but it's actually subtly mistaken because what scripture actually does is it tells us not just additional and new things about God, but it tells us how we ought to interpret the things that we see around us as well. Just take some obvious examples, and and this is an example, as soon as I've said it, you'll start to be able to generalize it to other things. Um, History tells us that around about 2000 years ago, there was a Galilean uh, carpenter's son, although not quite the son, Uh, of the carpenter but certainly the son of the carpenter's wife by the name of Joshua or Jesus Ben Joseph who grew up to be a preacher who declared himself to be the son of God and generated a very wide following at the same time as generating a whole bunch of opposition on account of which he was eventually crucified by the Romans at the behest of some of the Jewish leaders who were jealous of him and angry of him and made some accusations against him which were all false that's what history tells us. What does scripture tell us? Scripture tells us how to read those events. Those events of history, it tells us how to read them. It records the events, it tells us what happened, but it also interprets them for us. History tells us that uh, once there came out of Egypt uh, a community of people, sons of Abraham and a bunch of hangers-on from Egypt who traveled a journey that should have taken them a few weeks, actually took them 40 years, ended up in the land of Canaan where they settled and built a temple to worship their God. The Bible tells us what God was doing in and through those events, which you recognize as being narrated in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and all the rest of the Old Testament histories. You see what's happening. In Scripture, what you are seeing is not an alternative to... God's revelation in the created order only—you are seeing an interpretation of God's revelation in the created order. Now, um, what does this do for our um, the practicalities of our Bible reading? Well, what I want to encourage you to do is to think about your life as a revelation from God that is being played out with you as the lead character, at least the lead character in your life from the perspective from which you see it. Of course, we are bit part players in God's drama, but it doesn't do us any harm, at least uh, in one sense, to think of ourselves as as a character in the drama that the living God has orchestrated from before the creation of the world, and here we are wondering what to do as God is revealing his purposes in and through us. What's he doing? And how are we supposed to respond to this? And uh, how are we supposed to interpret the things that happen to us? Well, we can't interpret our lives. We're fallen and fallible creatures. We need this new and second light, the Scriptures, to be shone upon us, to show us what part we should play in the drama of history where God has placed us and he's placed us in the drama so that we see it from a the perspective of, of a particular character in that history and so God tells us about ourselves he tells us that tells us that we're precious to him we might be a bit part player but we're created in his image and renewed in the image of Christ and we're called to take on particular responsibilities which are commensurate with the opportunities that we have and the place that God has put us in and my goodness here I am I speak of myself a husband a father of three pastor of a uh, enthusiastic medium-sized and growing church with a whole bunch of other responsibilities what am i supposed to do what are the lines i'm supposed to say what are the what's the part i'm supposed to play in it my goodness where could i go for insight to interpret this cosmic historical drama in which god is revealing his glory in the whole of human history and he's dumped me in the middle of the i don't know what act it is in the middle of this uh, play that is the whole of human history. Where do I go to figure out what to do? I have to go to the scriptures. I have to go to the scriptures to figure out what God is doing about around about me, to figure out what he's doing in me and through me, how to interpret, how to respond to the circumstances I'm in and so on. You see, if we approach the scriptures in that way, it, it doesn't give us a Bible in a year, three and a half chapters a day Bible reading plan. But I think it operates at a very different level and perhaps, I think, a more helpful level for at least some of us. Perhaps it might operate at the, what would we say, the emotional level or the volitional level to do with how we feel about the Word of God and how we're inclined towards it. Are we not inclined, if we can see ourselves in that way, as the privileged players on the stage of history, who desperately need to know what's going on and what the great architect of history is doing and he's given us the blueprint he's given us the scriptures which are filled with breathtaking simplicity and mind-boggling complexity and he's right have at it here it is go and figure out what it is that you're here for and what it is that you're here to do that's what the scriptures are now I think for myself approaching the Bible in that way actually probably does us as much good, if not more good, for me personally than all the Bible reading plans in the world, and I've used a few. It's not that those plans aren't helpful, and if you've got one and you're finding it helpful, I encourage you to use it, but um, I want to encourage people to dive into the scriptures, For the right kind of reason, because I think that will likely be more sustainable in the long term. Here we are, what is it, the 17th of January as I'm recording this. Some of you began New Year's resolutions two and a half weeks ago, and you're already feeling terrible because you're four days behind in the Bible reading plan for the year resolution. What's going to get you back on track? Well, it's not a longer, sharper, heavier stick to whack yourself with. It might be a great thing to you know, take an hour on Sunday afternoon, get back up to speed with your Bible reading plan, and if you've fallen a bit behind, I encourage you to do so. But what's going to keep you on track, I think, is a sense of what it is that we hold in our hands here by which God is leading us through history as precious actors, I don't want to say that irreverently, precious characters in the drama that he is weaving in and through us and through countless billions of other people. So then something on Bible reading. Prayer, well how does prayer fit into that? Here I want to point out something extremely obvious. Um, In uh, Matthew chapter uh, 6 Jesus is asked um, how Uh, Sorry, this is not how Jesus is this is the Sermon on the Mount, this is just Jesus going off on one. uh, with The the long sermon that that announces, um, uh, in a sense, in Matthew's Gospel, sets his agenda for his ministry, and a bunch of other things besides. But uh, you know that in uh, other Gospels, the the teaching on the Lord's Prayer is prompted by a question from the disciples, teach us how to pray. Well, here, Jesus just jumps in, when you pray, and then he tells them first what not to do, and he says, don't pray in an ostentatious way. Um, verses 5 to 6 of Matthew 6 that's what the hypocrites do they've received their reward the adulation from others for their many for their long words and their complexity and I have no problem at all with our our beautifully constructed prayers I'm tremendously blessed myself by the thoughtfulness and the care that goes into the composition of the prayers that the deacons and the elders lead here at All Saints but um, if you don't find it possible to Construct prayers as beautiful as that on the fly then join the club. I'm in that club Uh, And just pray what uh, Comes to you but particularly and jesus is going to go on to say what you should pray Don't think that you need to pray great long prayers verse 7 When you pray don't heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words i'm sorry to say that many of us Just need to hear that uh, exhortation, actually that encouragement. Don't think that we will be heard because of our many words. And Jesus then says, look, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. And he gives them six petitions, which takes up about an inch and a half in one column of my Bible. Pray like this. It's very striking to me that evangelical scholars down through the ages have tried to argue that Uh, this is a pattern that ought to be expanded into longer prayers. I'm afraid to say I, I just don't agree. It seems to me that Jesus is saying this is how to pray. And it's very simple. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil or from the evil one that's it now of course naturally as you pray that your mind is going to be drawn to particular manifestations of that forgive us our debts well forgive us for particular sins and you might confess particular sins that you are aware of having committed Uh, your will be done you might inevitably just have call to your mind spontaneously questions that you have or decisions that you're uh, puzzled by and not sure what to do and you simply ask that the Lord would do his will in that situation or the other situation. But it's just remarkable that this prayer is so short. Even the long prayers of scripture, Nehemiah's prayer and Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, the longer prayers of scripture are actually quite short. And I have no um, argument against days of fasting and prayer or uh, spending all night in prayer. Uh, Jesus did once or twice. It was recorded having done so in, in Luke's gospel particularly. But here the prayers look really short and really simple. We've got a bunch of other prayers. In the Psalms, prayers set to music probably, and certainly we set them to music nowadays, ways in which the word of God teaches us to respond to him. And the overwhelming image I'd encourage you to have in your mind is something like this. I, I I shared this with a friend recently and I want to share it with you. I think I might even have said it on one or two other occasions at All Saints, so forgive me if you've heard it but if you've not I hope it will be helpful. I want you to imagine that uh, you went into uh, a room where a small child perhaps one of your own children or uh, a niece or a nephew or the child of a friend was sitting uh, on uh, his bed or on her little chair with her eyes screwed tight shut and praying and as you watched you saw the child begin praying prayed two or three sentences and then opened her eyes and then glanced around and looked at you On then realized that you'd been watching and somewhat embarrassed then went off and did whatever they were doing before how would you feel in that situation when you saw that small child praying two or three short halting quiet sentences in broken grammar and with requests that sounded well, to your theologically informed mind somewhat childish. How would you feel about that? I'd take it that you would feel thrilled if you were the parent of that child, you'd be perhaps reduced to tears by the thought that your little one was there praying. If you were a relative or a friend of the child's parents, perhaps you'd just feel so delighted for those parents and for that child herself that She should have such a relationship with her Lord Jesus that she can just sit on her chair and pray two or three sentences and then, isn't that wonderful? Well, the way you look at that child, the way you are thrilled and delighted and encouraged by those two or three sentences of prayer, do you think that's so very different from how our Heavenly Father looks at us? Really? I genuinely think that when the Lord God, our Father, looks down upon us and sees our two or three halting sentences in broken grammar with requests that frankly look a little childish at points and somewhat immature and perhaps even misguided I think our Father is delighted with us we have no need to think that we come to our Father to impress him what we are is his children Uh, we've been invited to uh, not just Live these privileged and wonderful lives uh, on the stage of history that he's orchestrating, but also to read his interpretation of that great drama in the scriptures so we know how to navigate the various scenes that he leads us through. And more than that, we get to talk with the author of the play anytime you want. You just drive it along in the car. Don't close your eyes if you're driving along in the car. If you're sitting at your desk or you've got five or ten minutes in the morning you've got a cup of coffee receive that cup of coffee with thanksgiving in your heart receive the coffee as an act of worship to the lord enjoy that cup of coffee as an act of devotion to him and as you do so give thanks to him for everything else how would you look at a small child who spoke to their heavenly father in that way wouldn't you envy their piety well how foolish of us to envy somebody's piety Wouldn't it be better just to join in? To pray then like this. Simplistic, childlike prayers. I want to set you free from false expectations that there is some standard of hyper-piety or hyper-spirituality to which you must attain. And instead encourage you to hear the voice of and speak words to your Heavenly Father. The Lord bless you as you do so. And bye for now.